Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Heavenly Father, all of your word is good for us. And uh, though there are many things in our hearts and in our world which cause turmoil, uh, Scripture speaks with astounding clarity on what our hope is uh, and how we can get it and how we walk in light of it. And so, Lord, I pray today um, that you are supreme in our hearts um, because we see you as supreme on the cross uh, over history and over all of the tumult and turmoil of our own day. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, my wife and I could not get our first two children to take pacifiers, and so it was a wonderful gift of grace from the Lord when our youngest two daughters finally accepted them. I was like, this is what other parents get in their life. It was great. Uh, and they, they fell in love with them. As nighttime neared, uh, Ellie would uh, become increasingly giggly as the hour of what we called the bop-bop uh, drew near. And she would take that bop-bop, and she would cover her face and just like slip into a pile of puddle goo uh, with it as she just like giggled herself to sleep. Uh, my other daughter, my youngest, June, she would have a similar level of amicability when she had the bop-bop. But until she got that, uh, she was a little bit uh, mostly mad. Mad until she got the bop-bop. And my wife and I made a rule for both of these girls. Um, They loved it so much, we knew if we didn't intervene, we'd have like 20-year-olds with pacifiers on campus. And so we said, all right, when you turn three, we're going to get rid of the bop-bop, but uh, I'm going to stop saying bop-bop. But we are also going to go to the store, and you'll get to throw it away, and then we'll go into the store, and we'll get a new, uh, better toy or something that occupies your heart. And so to prepare our daughters for that, we started to warn them of what would come as we got nearer and nearer to that date. For Ellie, it made the anxious joy a little bit more anxious. For June, it made the anger a little more angrier. And in today's passage in the book of Luke, Jesus is going to talk to us about a coming day of great loss and trial. And we're beginning Jesus' largest teaching on the end times, or what is often called eschatology, the study of the last things. And for some of us, uh, these passages that we just read are what get us up in the morning. We love talking about this. Other of you are like, we should have picked a different church today to visit. This is going to get weird. Just wait till next week. But one commentator uh, talked about the humor of this tension and called Christians to a beautiful middle ground when he said this. He says, eschatology, that's the study of the last things, of the end times, has very bad press among many mainline Christians. Eschatology is left to those who claim to know that we are on the fourth or fifth trumpet of the apocalypse, or that the beast is X or Y, or that the rapture will take place this coming Wednesday. But the fact of the matter is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is unintelligible without eschatology. Were we to take the very gospel of Luke we've been reading and tear out of it every page that speaks of the promise of the kingdom or the day of the return of the absent master, very little would be left. We can't make sense of the gospel apart from how it makes sense of all of our course of human history, that which is past and that which is to come. In other words, to those in here who are potentially overzealous, we need to read these passages in light of the rest of Scripture. This is not all the Bible has for us. 
And for those of us who encountered this passage and were potentially disinterested, we must learn to read this as God's word. This is for our good. What is here? And just as Sarah and I did with my girls, Jesus does for us today. He warns us of what is to come so that we might prepare our own hearts and be reminded that though a day of loss might come, it's also the time where we receive something better than we could ever imagine. In a way that would have baffled the minds of the Jews, we've been following uh, Jesus as he is kind of concluding this narrative in Jerusalem that's going to begin with the passion sequence we'll pick up in, in January. And he's come in to predict the undoing, or theologically speaking, the fulfilling of three uh, portraits of Israel's hope. He has rebuked uh, the scribes. We saw that last week and predicted their undoing. This week, he's going to predict the destruction of, Jeru- or of the temple. And next week, he's going to predict the destruction of Jerusalem itself. And while biblical prophecy often has multiple points of fulfillment throughout God's history, it seems Jesus is preparing the disciples for two things in this text. One is the destruction of the temple, and two is the endurance of the church. The temple will be thrown down, but the Lord's church will endure. In times of trial, disciples must resist the counterfeit hopes and instead cling to the hope of the name of Jesus. And this is going to be our main point today. It's simply this, that Jesus is always certain hope in ever uncertain times. Jesus is always certain hope in ever uncertain times. And we're going to see this in three ways. First, we're going to see that that the name of Jesus is the name that brings us peace. The name of Jesus is the name that brings us to witness. And lastly, the name of Jesus is the name that brings us to enduring life. And you'll notice, if you were with us last week, that I opened this passage by keeping uh, Luke 21, 1 through 4, which was part of our text we looked at last week, where this widow comes and is presented as beautiful, uh, given her meager offering to to the temple. And I think Jesus intended this to be seen in contrast to everything that follows, because just as Jesus affirmed this poor widow who gave her mere two pennies out of her poverty, we begin to see the contrast of what the disciples immediately begin to be talking about as beautiful. Big, beautiful rocks. Look at how Luke picks this up. He says, And while some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And you'll notice Jesus predicts the destruction of what they see in order to hold out for them the ability to see something of greater beauty and greater hope. And this is the main point, uh, our first main point today. This is the name that brings us peace. And so this temple uh, was begun in the Old Testament by Zerubbabel and the returning exiles from Babylon. But when Herod came, Uh, much later, he expanded the Temple Mount, he kind of refurbished it, he he made it fantastic, and he did so as kind of this display of uh, Jewish nationalism, but also of this intense pride he had in his own uh, position to rule. This was going to be his legacy, his capstone, and so he invested a fortune into this temple. Josephus, a first century historian, said this, he said, the exterior of the building lacked nothing that could astound either the mind or the eye. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. 
And yet this long-anticipated, well-funded, and beautiful temple, Jesus just said, is going to be thrown down like an oversized pile of Legos. The best comparison I could think for us is someone going to the National Mall in Washington, D.C. and tipping over the Washington Monument or taking apart the Lincoln Memorial. It's a shock not only to the beautiful artistry of it, but to the national sense of pride in history that goes into it. What it stood for, and it's well recorded in the year 70 AD, a couple decades after Jesus shared these very words, that Rome came and captured Jerusalem under Titus and sacked the temple and took those big, beautiful stones and they removed them all to their foundations. They dug up what was there and they even made it flat afterwards so you couldn't tell that the temple was ever there. And so why is Jesus allowing this to happen? The temple was God's temple. He had told his people that there would be a place where they could come and experience his presence. And here Jesus, who is the very presence of God himself, says that his people, his promised people, the Jews, are going to have their temple destroyed. There's three quick reasons that are pertinent to our study today I want to touch on. Touch on. And first is one we're going to return to in more depth next week as Jesus fleshes it out a little bit more. And the first reason the temple is going to be destroyed is that it was part of God's judgment against an unbelieving Israel. More to come on that next week. Second, the destruction of the temple reminds us and of the Jews that we are not to put our hope in physical things. John Calvin uh, spoke about the robust hope of the temple, and he said this. He said, So great was the reverence entertained for the temple, even in remote districts, that scarcely any person would venture to suppose that it could ever be destroyed. The temple in all its glory was unassailable. It was an enduring picture of hope. And our hearts, just like the disciples' hearts, tend to immediately forget what Jesus points out as beautiful and lovely, and instead we put our hope in what our own eyes see and what the world sees as beautiful, lovely, and enduring. We struggle to see what truly brings beauty and the promise of endurance because we too are so easily blinded by the power and beauty of big rocks. We gravitate towards these things and we seek to worship these gifts of God instead of God who gives the gift. God was removing the physical temple because if you read through the Old Testament and Israel's history, even when they had the temple, they often found themselves worshiping the temple of God and not the God of the temple. They were blinded to that which seems so physical and so obvious in their midst. And our own hearts get stuck on the physical gifts of God and we wrap our contentment and we wrap our hope around those gifts which God has given us to remind us that he is the giver that our hope is in nothing that God has made, but in the God who has made. And the God who took on flesh in Jesus Christ to bridge that gap between what is seen and what is unseen. Like Jonah, we are more appreciative of the meager vine that gives us shade from the sun than we are of the God who grants us eternal relief from sin and judgment. So a good conversation for you to have when you sit down with lunch, perhaps from a member you meet here and you go grab some food afterwards or even in your own household, is what, what, what would your answer be if you had to fill in the blank to this question? I don't know if God would be good if he took away blank. What would that be? For the Jews, this was the temple. They could not fathom God's goodness if the temple was destroyed. What are the things in your life that you say, if this were removed from me, I cannot fathom how God would be good? And then you can begin to talk about 
Well, Jesus is going to show how God might actually have something better for you than that in the gospel. So that's second. Third, the destruction of the temple signified God's global plan for his people. Uh, Some of you are perhaps familiar with the movie Jaws, and when the crew sees how big the shark is, uh, one of them, uh, one of the characters reflects with one simple conclusion, and he says, we're going to need a bigger boat. The temples of Solomon and the temple of Herod were big and beautiful and massive, but God needed a bigger temple in order to gather all of his people. Even Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, prophetically spoke of of something that he could only foresee in God's promise to be a blessing to the nations when he prayed this, that in the temple, all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. God himself says this through the prophet Haggai, predicting the, the second temple that would come that Zerubbabel would build. He says, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. When you read the Old Testament, you do see that when the second temple was rebuilt, that funds came miraculously. God provided for the rebuilding process from the nations. But it's this very temple that was funded by the gold of the nations that Jesus has already rebuked as empty, and where Jesus says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations, interpreting Psalm 50, or Isaiah 56 globally, that even the Gentiles ought to be able to come to these portions in worship. And now Jesus continues this and says that very temple is going to be destroyed. You see, Jesus knew that God's goal was a temple that didn't gather gold from the nations, but gathered people from the nations. Sons and daughters from afar would come to God in his presence through the work of the Son. John wrote the book of Revelation after 70 AD, which is when Rome came and uh, destroyed Jerusalem and tore down the temple. And when you read it, he doesn't hold out hope. He doesn't call the Jews or even call the Christians to the hope of a physical temple being rebuilt. Instead, he says the plan of God culminates in what he calls three times the new temple which we see in the end is the heavenly temple that comes down, which God establishes at the end of all things, in which all God's saints dwell forever in his immediate presence. You see, just as you knock down a wall in your home in order to extend your living room, the knocking down of the temple was God's long planned for renovation process to make the earth his temple and to draw his people into his immediate presence through Jesus Christ. And the disciples responded to this bold prediction saying this in verses seven through nine. Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said to them, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified for these things must take place first. But the end will not be at once. Now notice what Jesus often does with our questions is he he reframes them. The two things the disciples want to know is what and when. But Jesus' primary answer revolves around who. He assumes that when difficult things begin to happen in our own lives, our first question will be, where is Jesus? And what history has shown us is that when such things happen in wars and tumults and difficult times, that counterfeits claiming to be the peace of God often abound. 
In fact, Josephus records that um, when Rome came, and Jesus, we'll see this next week, actually tells the citizens of Jerusalem when they see the armies to flee. And those who stayed in Jerusalem, uh, as the, the, the armies grew nearer to the temple, there was a Jewish false prophet who went to the temple. He declared himself to be Christ, and he called all the Jews that were in the city, come to the temple, and you will be delivered. I am he, the time is at hand. And everyone who assembled to him was killed by Rome in the temple courts. History across nations and eras and languages all have shown that when wars and whispers of war abound, so too do cult leaders and wolves in sheep's clothing who come and say, come to me, I will bring you deliverance. As Americans, we only need to look back to the Branch Davidians in 1993 in Waco, Texas, and we see how turmoil often gives us rose-colored glasses. We look at people who otherwise would seem crazy and outlandish, but as soon as things get difficult, we start thinking through the eyes of man, and that which the Bible says is foolish, we actually find as hopeful. Jesus knows that hardship presses our hope, and it has the potential to make us fools. But Jesus is saying that his disciples, when pressed by hardship, should be shown as faithful. Faithful to who? Faithful to Jesus. He says, when this happens to Jerusalem, hold on. The end's not yet. I haven't left you. It's going to be okay. Don't fear. Don't panic. These things must take place, Jesus says. The end will not be at once. When our own lives get a little bit bumpy, we often run to anything that seems to provide us the hope of heaven. We do this almost daily, don't we? We try to avoid discomfort. We try to avoid sorrow and and hardship by running to that which we think will remove it. But Jesus says to all of us that it's only me. It's only my name, and I'm not coming back yet. So stick at it. Be faithful. Know me. As the psalmist says in Psalm 73, 23 and 24, he says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me into glory. We are guided by the hand of God through his counsel in his word. When all the voices of the world start saying to you, I am he, come and be delivered. Do you know the voice of your savior? Do you know what he sounds like? Do you know what he's calling you to endure? Because anything else will leave you hopeless. If your hope is in the temple, you'll be lost. If your hope is in anything created, you'll be duped. But if your hope is in Jesus, you will make it. For he holds the whole world in his hand, in all of our times, in all of our histories. Now he does say that this skirmish that's going to happen in Jerusalem is going to happen, it's going to be real, it's going to be terrifying. But he says, but the end, the big end, the capital E end will come. And he says, you'll know it on that day. He talks about this in chapter 21, verses 10 through 11. He says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilence, and there'll be terrors and great signs from heaven. In other words, this is juxtaposed. It's just paralleling. At one point, what's local, and these men stand up and say, I am he, the time's at hand. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, the world will tell you. (laughs) The skies the earthquakes, the global catastrophe is a better mouthpiece when Jesus is coming. When Jesus says, when you hear I am he, the time's at hand from my mouth, you're gonna know it. 
Because it's not going to be a localized false prophet. I, as the creator of everything, am going to make it clear according to the whole world announcing this is coming to an end. And he's using the same language of signs from heaven he used in chapter 17 when he talked about his second coming. It's the same language when, that we're going to see next week in chapter 21 as he talks about his second coming. That one day what happens local in Jerusalem is a foreshadow of what's going to happen globally to all the people on earth. Both the promise of salvation and of judgment. And he's saying it's going to be so profound that no one will miss it. You won't need to ask, is this it? Is this coming back? It's going to be huge. They'll know. Have you ever given any instructions to out-of-town visitors who want to visit Sealy Lake? You're laughing because you know what I'm about to say. What do you say? Turn at the cow. Do you have to tell them which cow? No. They know. When Christ comes back, you'll know. You'll know the time is at hand. And until then, Jesus is saying, until that happens, cling to me. Endure to me. You'll want to read tea leaves. You'll want to find other things. But when you are to know, you will know. Know now, though, to be wise. Because before that time comes, Jesus says, there's more left to happen. There's more to come before I come. And he tells his disciples that the temple that they see with their eyes, that's what Jesus is talking about, that's going to be torn down. But then he begins to talk prophetically about the temple that they cannot see, the temple that cannot be torn down, the temple that endures eternally. And that is the one that we've seen here are those people who have faith in his name. That Jesus is going to build his church that looks foolish and doesn't look radiant to the world, that looks weak and doesn't look bold and audacious to the world. But that is the presence of God that will endure through everything. Listen to how he talks about this in verses 12 through 15. Before all this, that is before this cataclysmic signs from heaven, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth of wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And this is our second point this morning. We're only after establishing the name that brings us peace. Hold on, it's going to be okay. I'm coming back, but not yet. Now he presents himself as the name that brings us to witness. The name that brings us to witness. And what we see here is, is before the end comes, there are going to be a group of people who face suffering on all sides. Suffering from the Jews in their synagogues, suffering from the jailers in their prison, suffering from the governors in their council, and from kings in their courts. Verse 16 says, from your own homes and from your best friends. And why are they opposed? Well, it's clear in this text. It is because of the name of Jesus. As national Israel faces judgment because they do not know the name of Jesus, they refuse to acknowledge the day of visitation is what Jesus also already said in the book of Luke. Jesus transitions here to those who will be persecuted in this age because of their faith in the name of Jesus. Now, the New Testament roughly sketches um, the, the outline of human history um, from the New Testament onward in, in four epochs. And it is uh, Christ, church, second coming, kingdom. And so the age of Christ, Jesus' physical ministry, the age of the church, where the church continues to do what he's called us to do, the second coming, where Jesus comes back, and the eternal kingdom. 
And many Christians, perhaps even some in this room, uh, will, will dicker in faith about what happens in the church age, what happens in the second coming age, and, and how does that happen. But generally speaking, those four things, Christ, church, coming, kingdom, outline what we have left to face. And Jesus here is talking about the church age. It is people who are afflicted on account of his name before he comes back. The time after Jesus' ascension into heaven and before his glorious return. And Luke seems that he found it this way too because listen to how Luke, the very Luke who wrote the book of Luke, um, that's a Bible trivia for you. Um, uh, he, He also writes the book of Acts. And he describes what Jesus is saying to the disciples who are about to start the New Testament church and look at what he says and hear the echoes of Luke 21. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Again, when Jesus calls Paul to ministry, miraculously so, in Acts chapter 9, what does he say? He says, go for he, that is Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Acts, the book of Acts, is Luke's sequel to the age of Christ, but it is the prequel to the age of the church. In other words, it picks up after Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, but then it begins to show the process of how the church is bearing witness to the world, continuing the work of Christ through his body, going global. It begins, Luke's geographic mind continues in the book of Acts, it begins huddled in fear in Jerusalem, and it ends in bold proclamation of the gospel even to Rome. And from there, the world catches fire through the church. But let's not bury the lead. How does the church catch fire? Often from the bodies of Christians burned at the stake. How does this massive global witness take off? Not through winsome preachers, not through stellar growth movements, not by social media influencers or powerful converts, but through persecution. Listen all the ways Jesus described that in the text. It's right there. They will lay hands on you. And they'll persecute you. They'll deliver you over to the authorities. And even we see later on, do far worse. This is not the best sales pitch for church growth. But I would ask you, how do you think about the church? And how do you talk about the church? Because this is, in fact, in the book of Luke, what Jesus has been preparing his disciples to do. This is not new. This is what Jesus says life in the church is like. Remember what he said in chapter 9? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. Now, we might wrestle with this. We might say, if I went to the University of Montana campus, if I went to class with some GCF students and I stood and said, hey, come and do this because you'll probably die. There's not a lot of people who would follow that. But this is where, for those who have faith in Jesus Christ, you're reminded of the beauty of what has happened in your heart. This is what the Christians call conversion. 
It's what Jesus affirms to Peter in Matthew 16 when Peter professes faith in Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We will not follow Jesus unless God opens our eyes to the beauty of Jesus. Following Jesus, make no mistake, challenges everything you hold dear, but to follow Jesus means that the Holy Spirit has given us eyes to treasure Jesus more dearly than anything else. And often it's the passing of everything else that reveals the work of what the Holy Spirit has done to give us affections for the Lord. John Owen, writing amidst religious persecution in 17th century England, put it this way. He said, you could take a fish out of the cold, dark ocean, and you could bring him to your favorite beach, the one you like on Instagram or you're saving up money to go to, and you could lay that fish and be like, I have delivered you, and I've put you on the warm sand. Now enjoy it. Y'all are a bunch of murderers. Because the fish has no faculty, no ability to enjoy that. It has no lungs to breathe air in that way. The sun will roast it instead of giving it that nice toasted brown you want on your vacation. It can't find any refreshment from that. And we too cannot look at what Jesus calls the church to endure on account of his name or find anything attractive about dying daily to oneself unless we are first converted from fish to mammals, from dead to alive, from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. And this is what salvation does. It is the power of God to give us lungs for Jesus. John Owen says this, he says, music has no pleasure in it unto them that cannot hear. The most beautiful colors unto them that cannot see. So too, the person of Jesus, and he says, even the joys of heaven would not be more advantageous to the person not renewed by the spirit of grace in this life. This is a fearful and weighty thing. But the Holy Spirit equips us for it because this is what conversion is. For the Christians, the name of Jesus becomes the son of their life. It is what we wish to bask in. He is the snorkel of hope when we feel suffocated for all things. He is our joy when theme, things seem bleak. He is our life when we sense only death. And it is the sufficiency of Jesus and the reward of our conversion that Jesus is assuming here when he says this in verse 14. Settle it therefore in your minds. So actually that word there is it's cardia, it's, it's, it's heart, um, but speaking to it's kind of rationalized, like thinking about it, but it's meant to be tied to your affections. Settle it, therefore, in your hearts to not meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth of wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. All right, you guys probably mostly know I'm a very anxious person. When Jesus says, you're about to be killed, but don't worry about thinking about your defense, I find that to be quite discomforting. <laughs> There's very few things in life I'm not already overthinking. And now he's saying, don't think about it. But there are two imperatives in this text today. I don't know if you've seen them. The first was earlier on where he says, do not be led astray. The second is right here where he says, settle it right now, right now. In your hearts and in your minds to not think about what you will say because I will give you a mouth of wisdom and understanding and you will know how to answer. We can only keep, I'll put it, the other way first, we can never keep these two commands by our own power. 
And that is to say, we can only keep these commands when Jesus is distinct from everything else. Why will he not be led astray in a world gone crazy? Because you know the voice of your shepherd. You know the one who says, I am he. And you know what he's calling you to endure. Because we know what Jesus sounds like and we know he hasn't left us yet. How will we not be worried about how to respond when we're persecuted? Because of what Jesus himself is going to do to fill your mouths with boldness of the gospel that this world will not be able to defend or contradict. See, here's the offensive firepower of the Christian church. Jesus says to Peter right after his profession of faith in, in uh, Matthew 16, he says, on, this, on Peter, on this confessing community, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When it comes to storming the gates of hell, snatching people from death to life by the power of Jesus Christ, persecution is often the bridge that gets us there. But the spirit of God is the battering ram which tears down the doors as we bear witness to Jesus Christ. Luke already has recorded for us Jesus sending out his disciples um, in Luke chapter 10. And listen to how he described it. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. All right. And you know what happened? Every one of them came back. And what did they say? They said, we saw Satan falling from heaven. The gates of hell were crumbling before us. But guess what? This was before Jesus died and was resurrected. That is to say, this was before he did something even more astounding than that. He promises that those men would go out as little lambs, but one day he said he would give them a heart of the lion. Jesus connecting the transition from the church age and the second coming. When is this going to happen? He speaks of this in Acts, the beginning pages. Chapter 1, verse 7. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons, that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. We want what and when? What does Jesus say? Who? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is providing for us in the Holy Spirit what he has just commanded us to do in Luke chapter 21. You may not be a bold evangelist, but the spirit is. You may not be a people person, but the spirit is. You may not thrive under pressure, but the spirit does. You may feel like all you are is a human with human weaknesses, but the spirit is God himself filling these vessels in all of our brokenness and all of our clay with the power of God. And how does he do it? In you. This is the joy of the temple being destroyed. We no longer have to seek out a place to find God's presence. Through the Holy Spirit, God's presence has come to you. All of that power, all of that beauty, all of that hope you want to see is sealed in you by faith through the Holy Spirit. We don't need to figure out then how to gain worldly power for our endurance. We don't need to compromise with false prophets who say, I am he. Hey, Christian church, give up a little bit here and I promise you'll have better ballots next time. May we be ones who hope boldly in Christ and Christ alone. Would you join me in praying for our church? That it would be said of our church, what was said of the Christian church in Acts 4.31, saying, for they were 
all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That boldness comes from the God who is spirit, who has given it to us so that we might do what Christ has called us to do. And we are very bold for we have the name that is greater than life itself. This is our third point this morning. Our final point, the name that brings us enduring life. Jesus continues with this stellar sales pitch. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By endurance, you will gain your lives. Jesus has such a way with words, doesn't he? (laughs) Some of you are going to be killed, probably by your best friend. But don't worry, it'll be a good hair day. Not one hair on your head is going to fall. (laughs) You see, just a moment ago, in Luke's gospel, if you're with us, Jesus talked to the Sadducees about the resurrection from the dead. And here Jesus is bringing back that doctrine to embolden the church for what death might take, but what Christ ultimately gives. This is what Jesus is talking about. Hair is no good on a corpse. And he's saying that your hope is so locked up in a real resurrection that your resurrection will be so full and final that not one hair will be unaccounted for. Mama might blot your name out of her will on account of the name of Christ. Your brother might turn you over to the Hindu or the Muslim authorities. Your best friend might forsake you. But Jesus knows every hair. Jesus keeps the receipts, and one day the dead in Christ will not only live, but will be rejoined with their physical body, because death itself is not merely put to death on the cross, it is undone on the cross. Church, you can't keep track of your keys. There is not one follicle of your hair that following Christ causes to drop that Jesus will not gather and restore in the resurrection. Death is real. Death is painful. Death is brutal. But death is not the end of the Lord's saints. Kids, if you're in here and what I'm talking about sounds fearful, know that God is more faithful. Know that there is something worse than death. And that is judgment in hell. And Jesus has made even death safe for you. It's this rock solid promise of the boldness of the spirit and the affirmation of Christian hope that illumines the pages of church history. One faithful Christian was sentenced to death in the age of the Reformation, for having faith in Christ alone. And one of the, the Catholic priests that was about to put him to death whispered down in his ear, and he says this. He says, I know you have a great reluctance to publicly abjure or to throw away your faith, so just whisper your confession in my ear, and I will absolve your sin. The man responded loudly for all to hear. Trouble me not, friar, For I have confessed my sins to God and obtained absolution through the merits of Jesus Christ. And you know what he did? He turned to his executioner and he said, let me not be pestered with these men anymore. Perform your duty. (laughs) 
in his witness, by his endurance, he gained his life. One observer commented on the demeanor of one man being walked to death uh, for the sake of his faith in Jesus. And he described it, he says, it was as if this man was walking to his wedding. And so they asked him, why? How are you? The man said, God be praised. I've never been better for I'm almost home. I lack but two hills to go over and then I'm at my father's house. In his witness, by his endurance, he gained his life. John Bradford turned to his fellow uh, martyr being burnt at the stake with him because of the name of Jesus. And he said, be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. In this life, your hair might be soiled and singed, but all will be accounted for. So says Paul to the church in 1 Corinthians 15, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The good news of the gospel, our gospel, is that it's a gospel that saves us and it will save others. This world will crumble and careen. The beautiful stones of even religiosity will one day be thrown down. But God's church endures forever because the one who went down into the grave has risen up and ascended to resurrection life. Just like the widow, we too might be overlooked and oppressed, but we have treasure unimaginable in the name of Jesus Christ. So two words in closing. First, repent and come to Jesus. If you are not a Christian in this room, you have temples abounding. You have bright stones which seem to remind you that everything is okay and it will always be okay. But look in the pages of church history and look at 70 AD and see that this Jesus keeps his word. Destruction is decreed, but redemption is possible through Jesus Christ, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a savior who does not face corruption, and peace that endures in the midst of hardship. If that's you, talk to me, talk to the person sitting next to you today. We'd love to help you know what it means to follow Jesus and to join his church. But secondly, church, let us be concerned with what Jesus has made clear about the end. Did you know that Jesus has told us when the end will come. What has he said? Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. When will Jesus come back? When the work is done. When all the hairs have been gathered. When all the saints have been saved. And how has he designed history to move in that direction? By preaching Christ as the church. By bearing witness, not to Sovereign Hope, not to Tyler Verlene, not to your boss's title, not to your bank account, but by bearing witness to Jesus Christ. And dear church, I tell you that you have right now a hope better than the temple, a refuge safer than Jerusalem, these men feared the loss of big, beautiful stones, but consider what Peter talks about when talking to the church. As you come to him, 
a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. The church is of greater refuge because the church knows what Christ saves. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you are already destined for judgment, but now you have been saved. Once you were destined to death, but now you have been given life. Once you were rich by the world's standards, but now you are rich in Christ. So let us then as humble widows in the flesh, but beautiful stones in the spirit, put in all we have to live on to the treasury of the gospel and say, come what may, Christ returns and those who endure will gain their lives. Let's pray. What a dumb message according to the flesh. As, G- as we see scripture say, as Jesus says to his disciples, blessed are your eyes for they see, blessed are your ears for they hear. Lord, we cannot hear, we cannot see apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, I ask that the Holy Spirit presses on us as a church in distinct ways that persecution on account of the gospel is not a foreign reality to the Lord's church. That even as in our homes, in our evangelism, in the workplace, in our country, if you so allow persecution to come, that we do not sacrifice witness for the sake of comfort, but instead we realize we have the power of the Holy Spirit and that the whole of our lives is in finding our greatest peace, not in running from Christ, but instead of standing in the power of Christ to declare the excellencies of him who has called us from death to life. Lord, I pray that you make us prayerful in light of all of this. I pray you take our meager efforts here in Missoula and you take it to the nations. You take it to the nations, not because we just want to get to the end, but because we want others to get to that end with the same hope we have. May we say, Lord Jesus, send me. Send me right now to my children who do not know the gospel. Send me right now to my coworkers who do not know the gospel. Send me right now to the nations who do not know the gospel. Because Lord, you are a king who has commissioned salvation to a people who have received the promise of it. We know you save souls because you've saved us. So let the temples fall, let the earth quake, but let us cling to the name of Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen.